BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. We are at the quarter pole, and I know that's the wrong use of the word. And all you horse people out there, you're going to say, wait a second, the quarter pole doesn't mean one quarter of the way into the race. I think it means one quarter of the way to the end of the race. But whatever it means, we're at the quarter pole of the NFL season, Miles Simmons. How are you feeling? (laughs) I'm feeling pretty good, Peter. It's funny because that's what coaches always say, right? Oh, we get four games in, we're at the quarter pole. So we're using it in the proper sense of the NFL term, even though now that there are 17 games, it's technically not a quarter of the season anymore. But, you know, nobody's used to that yet still. Nah. You really have to get to week five, honestly, before you're actually one quarter of the way through the season, because now this week is the first week with buys. You got four teams with buys, including the suddenly all powerful Seattle Seahawks. But (laughs) I'm not sure when you play when you beat the Toledo Mudhens on Monday night football (laughs) that you should be considered all powerful. But anyway, be that as it may. Let's talk about this week's pod. I'm going to have some observations about my weekend in Boulder, Colorado, seeing Deion Sanders and the Colorado Buffaloes and seeing a bunch of famous athletes. And also, Miles, I must confess, I saw a bunch of rappers, but I have no idea who they are. So I I can't bring you any. I did meet one of them, though. I met DaBaby. Okay, nice. and I, I, you know, okay. I, I wanted to say, man, love your music, but I, you know, sorry, I don't want to lie. <laughs> but anyway, there was a, it was quite a scene on the sidelines in Boulder, and I've got some observations about the state of college football, the state of Deion Sanders, and the state of the next two number one picks in the draft, Caleb Williams and Shadur Sanders, you know, maybe. But anyway, we'll talk about that later in the podcast. Our guest this week is going to be Gary Myers. He's written a book called Once a Giant about the 1986 Super Bowl champion New York Giants. And it's a very, very interesting book, whether you care about the New York Giants or or almost whether you care about football. It's what happens to a football team years and years and years later in this case, 37 years later. And what happens to a football team mentally, physically, financially? Uh, it's, I think it's really quite a good book. We'll talk to Gary Myers later in the podcast. But basically, Miles, I thought what we should talk about this week, we should talk about the old cliche, speaking of the Giants, Bill Parcells used to say it all the time. You never pick up one, week, one year where you left off the previous year. 
And we're going to talk about two of those teams in a positive sense. We're going to talk about Arizona and Houston. But we're going to start with talking about two of those teams in a negative sense. And that's the New York Giants and the Cincinnati Bengals. And Miles, I think if you had told anyone at the start of the season that before the first pitch of the World Series, the New York Giants were going to be out of the pennant race, I think everybody would have said, you're nuts. However, next two weeks, Miami, in Miami, Buffalo, in Orchard Park, and this is a team that has looked awful so far. They can easily be 1-5 in five and basically out of it uh, by October 15th. So I just want to get your initial observations. I'll give you mine your initial observations on the Giants after the Monday night debacle, the 24-3 loss to the Seattle Seahawks in which Daniel Jones was sacked 10 times and because a receiver was about to throw a pass and was sacked, that counts as a quarterback sack. So their quarterbacks were actually sacked 11 times and the Giants have spent so much money and draft capital on their offensive line. Two very high picks at tackle. One is now hurt, Andrew Thomas. One is a disaster, Evan Neal. Mm. So give me your RX on the New York Giants as we sit here four weeks in, Miles Simmons. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, when you start up front, it it just is not good. And, you know, anytime you give up 10 sacks on your quarterback, one sack on a receiver, let's, let's call I mean, it's just an abject disaster, right? And that's an institutional failure. That's not just on the QB. That's not just on the offensive line. It's not just on the coaching. It's everything combining to make one steaming pile of poop, right? Like that's all it is. And I don't know how else to characterize that, but you know, it's, it's just unfortunate when you look at that offensive line and the investments that they've made there, right? You contrast what the giants were doing. They had injuries. Yes. And I I think that that's worth noting, but so did the Seattle Seahawks, right? They were also missing pieces on the OL, and they still went out and they looked competent. You know, they had a drive orchestrated by their backup quarterback that ended in the touchdown. So that also tells you something about the different directions where these two organizations are headed. And I think maybe one thing or one image, let's call it, that, that some things up better than anything else was after that interception where you see Brian Dayball on the sideline and the cameras catch him and he's got the surface in his hand and he's about to show Daniel Jones something and he just gets so frustrated he just tosses the tablet. And that to me is like, you know, man, how many times have we talked about this thing? Like, How many times do we have to go over something until you get it right? And it's just really interesting just based on everything that we saw last year with the the Giants, with Daniel Jones, and yes, Saquon Barkley usually in there and helping to really make that offense go, but then the Giants paid Daniel Jones. So you're really, really, really stuck right now if you're the New York football Giants, and it cannot be a good feeling knowing that you got to play Miami and then Buffalo in the next two consecutive weeks. You know, the... I'm just going to give you three quick stats about the Giants, and then I'm going to give you my theory about the Giants. Three quick stats. They have been out-sacked this year by their opponents 23-4. to 23-4. to 
23 sacks given up, four sacks on the opposing quarterbacks. In the first half of games this year, the New York Giants have been outscored 77 to 9. And at home this year in their two games, they've been outscored overall 64 to 3. There is nothing positive about this. And now I've got a theory, Miles. Mm-hmm. And my theory is that the Giants were not that good last year. And I'm telling you, you we can we could debate this. I guarantee you that every person who loves the New York Giants is starting to say right now, well, hold on a second, hold on. They won 10 games last year. You don't win 10 games by accident. And you're right, you're right. I think the Giants deserved to win nine games in the regular season and a 10th in the playoffs at Minnesota. I'm not saying that it was fluky, that that anything like that, because I don't believe that. I don't think, I think one week in the NFL can be a fluke. 17 weeks cannot. So mm-hmm. the Giants got what they deserved last year. However, the mistake for the New York Giants is thinking, or as a fan or internally, that you were 85% of the way there. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you two reasons why I think that. Okay. Entering this season in their own division, the Giants over the last two seasons had been 2-10-1. They had won two division games, and that counts the Philadelphia playoff game last year. By the way, if you're saying, well, how could it be an odd number? Every team plays six division games, but that adds up to 13. I'm counting the loss to Philadelphia in the playoffs. So this is a team that only won two division games last year. And if you look at reality right now, after they lost to Dallas 40 to nothing the first game of the year, they now basically have won two of their last 14 division games. And if you looked at the way the Washington Commanders played on Sunday, wouldn't you say that the biggest line of demarcation in the NFC East right now is not between Dallas or Philadelphia and then whoever is third? It is between the Washington Commanders, number three, and the New York Giants, number four. I mean, we just witnessed the Washington Commanders playing a valiant game and Sam Howell playing, I thought, a brilliant overall game against a good defense. And, you know, look, maybe if Ron Rivera goes for two at the end of that game, we're talking about a team that has won two consecutive games at Lincoln Financial Field, and yet is almost certainly not going to make the playoffs this year. But anyway, I digress. The Giants. So when you talk about maybe they thought they were 85% there or whatever, they were one injury away from being abjectly mediocre on offense. And that injury belongs to Andrew Thomas, the left tackle. I would argue that even including Saquon Barkley, that Andrew Thomas, other than Daniel Jones, is the one player on offense that this team could least afford to lose. And he's obviously been lost with a hamstring strain. Don't, those things are tricky. You don't know how long that's going to last. And so I think that it's, an, it's, a, it's a thin football team, a thin offense 
And that's what we're seeing in the first four weeks of the season. Yeah, I, I think it clearly is thin. And, you know, anytime a team loses its left tackle, and especially a really, really good left tackle, that changes the complexion of the offense. And it changes what you can call and feel confident in with the pass protection. So that's one element of it. Yeah, and I, I think that that is actually a very big deal. But the, the San Francisco 49ers without Trent Williams at left tackle would be a very different team. You know, it, the, the Rams, yeah. when they lost... Andrew Whitworth, when he was, you know, still playing at that really high level, that, that makes it a different team. So all these things do absolutely work in concert together. But at the same time, when you're outscored, what did you say it was 77 to nine? When you're outscored by that in margin the half. in the first half, like that is bigger than just your left tackle. I mean, there, there are so many different right. problems there where it's hard to just say, okay, like, yes, this, if you change this, then you would have a better result. I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin with that, especially when you're only scoring three points yeah. at home. I, I, I just, there's just so much wrong that you almost have to strip it down to its most basic parts and say, okay, what are we doing? That's positive. Let's try to build off of that. But I don't know what they're doing. That's positive. Cause I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not privy to what they're being asked to do on every single play. You know, if you think about it, Miles, you know, this is a team that right now, uh, and, and again, we can, we can debate why these things have been. But if you take away the 31-point second half in Arizona that just totally saved their bacon, mm-hmm. in four games, three and a half games, this team has scored 15 points. It's, it is shocking how bad the New York Giants are. But anyway, yeah. enough of that, enough of that, that rollicking entertainment. Let's go to the other team that, uh, that I think is probably a shock to the system of a lot of people, but I don't think it should be all that shocking. And that is the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, the Bengals are a much better team than the New York Giants, even when the quarterback is at 67%, which is what it looks to me that Joe Burrow is like. I had a stat in my column on Monday in Football Morning in America that just kind of blows your mind. In the last two years, Joe Burrow, 21 and 22, had one touchdown pass, on every 16 per every 16 attempts. Mm -hmm. So once out of every 16 throws, it was a touchdown for Burrow. This year, it's one out of every 76 throws that he's got a touchdown pass. And I will maintain this. And this is why I think if you're the Bengals, you made a mistake in not keeping Trevor Simeon. You made a mistake in not keeping a quarterback on the roster who has played. And look, no one wants Trevor Simeon to be the guy they live and die with. But, you know, the question is, if you are the Bengals right now, no matter what you think of the potential of Jake Browning, okay, the undrafted free agent backup quarterback, who, by the way, is the only other active quarterback on the roster right now. 
They also have A.J. McCarron on the practice squad. I don't know who they would play if they decided that Burrow can't play right now. But I just want to bring up something about the way the Bengals are playing right now. Okay? There has been this mistaken um, uh, sort of narrative out there right now. And obviously, everybody knows that Joe Burrow is playing with a strained calf muscle. He had six weeks to get it right before the start of the season. It didn't get right. And now, if anything, compared to a month ago, it's worse. He restrained it uh, reportedly in Cleveland in the debacle loss uh, against the Browns. So, uh, and, and, and I... I just think that when you look at a quarterback who doesn't have full control, he can't step up in the pocket and plant his leg and throw comfortably. So that affects your mechanics totally. And the only reason I bring up Trevor Simeon is, look, if at least you have a guy on your roster who is started a bunch of games, however many, 30, I don't know, in the NFL. You have a guy who's not going to be blown away, who's not going to be you know, intimidated, nothing like that, who's going to go in there and you know, he's not very mobile, but he is going to give you a chance to run your offense. Now look, I don't know Jake Browning. I mean, I know he's the backup quarterback of the Bengals, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know five things about him. The point is, How can you have any trust if you're the Bengals that this guy who's never played before is going to go in and keep you in the pennant race while, uh, you know, while Joe Burrow gets healthy? And, and, and there is, I I think there has been this totally mistaken impression that, okay, don't, you know, it's not a big deal. Uh, You know, at some point this year, Joe Burrow is going to be okay and he's going to get healthy and all that. And and I would just say this. When you have an injury like that, sort of an unpredictable injury, and you start to say, okay, he's going to be okay, right? So they go to Arizona this week. The Cardinals are not an easy team to play at all. And the Cardinals are going to put up points because Josh Dobbs is no joke, you know, this, you know, I hate to be stream of consciousness, Miles, but I have to make a point. My daughter, Mary Beth, is running a family fantasy league this year. I haven't played fantasy football in years, but I said, okay, I'll play. So my quarterback is Justin Herbert. He's on a bye this week. So this morning, we're recording this on Tuesday, October 3rd. This morning, I'm walking the dog in Brooklyn. It's 6.30, whatever it is. And I'm walking the dog and I said, oh, Herbert's on a bye this week. I got to go pick up a quarterback. I picked up Josh Dobbs. <laughs> I mean, it's a riot. I picked up Josh Dobbs. And, but, but anyway, I mean, he's playing well. And he's not, he's not afraid. He's not intimidated. But, but anyway, the Bengals have to win, have to somehow, some way, have to either win at Arizona or when Seattle comes in. By the way, Seattle 
coming off a bye so that theoretically, you know, the sprained ankle or whatever it is of, uh, you know, of Geno Smith should have some time to get well. But, but all that, be that as it may, then they have their bye. So the easy thing to say is, oh, well, you know, Joe Burrow, he's going to be great when he comes off his bye on Halloween weekend. When he comes off his bye October 29, uh, there's only one problem with that. If he had six weeks to get healthy, six weeks, and the calf still bothers him, apparently a lot, and he re-aggravates the, or he aggravates the injury, you know, in an early season game. And then, by the way, coming off the bye, at San Francisco, Buffalo at home. Nick Bosa chasing you, Von Miller chasing you, uh, Matt Milano chasing you in that game. It, 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 look, in the immortal words of Laura King, I've now brought up both daughters in one riff. In the immortal words of Laura King, I'm just saying that to me, this Bengals season feels like it's lost at sea. Well, it, it certainly feels like it's on the brink, Peter. And, you know, it, after watching Joe Burrow against the Rams on that Monday night game, man, I started texting buddies. I was like, man, I don't know how he's going to be against the Titans, but I know that Titans defensive front is really good. And if he can't move, if he's this unhealthy as he is trying to play the Titans, that's going to be a problem. And man, did that bear itself out on Sunday. I mean, look, this is now two games that the Cincinnati Bengals have only scored three points in this season, right? And and yeah, that opening game against Cleveland was weird. You know, Cleveland's defense, I don't think anybody exactly expected it to be quite that ferocious coming out of the gate. You had rain on the shores of Lake Erie that you didn't necessarily expect. So that game, weird stuff happens in week one. But once you get to week four, and we're really starting to figure out what teams are over the course of the year, if Joe Burrow is still this unhealthy where he can't move enough that he can get passes off and that he can really put his body into throws and make sure that he's as accurate as he usually is, he can't evade the rush as he usually does in the pocket. You know, and he's so good at that. This is going to be a problem and it's going to continue to be a problem. And it's not just going to go away just because they're playing the Cardinals. And as you've mentioned, look, the Cardinals have been playing hard. They've been playing well. I mean, did they get stomped on in a wagon, you know, by the San Francisco 49ers? Yes. And that's going to happen to, I think, a bunch of teams this year, but they're not going to roll over for anybody. And so I think this is going to be a pretty tough matchup for the Cincinnati Bengals going to Arizona and playing them because it's just not there are things that just aren't fluid right now and it's like you almost want to have the Aaron Rodgers oh relax thing but you can't really relax when your quarterback's not healthy and so yeah I don't, I don't know if playing Jake Browning would be the solution I don't know what it is if they just need to get more out of the running game with Joe Mixon etc but man, it, it's not looking good right now for the Cincinnati Bengals and you know that's not great for me because I picked them to have the number one seed in the AFC <laughs> Hey, look, a lot of people love the Bengals and love the Bengals coming into this year. And I thought yeah. seriously of picking them. But but again, you know, I think sometimes, I mean, it's a weird thing to say. I forget who said this, but a long time ago, 
Uh, might have even been Parcells. I'm over-quoting him lately. But uh, somebody said, you know, God is playing in these games. And, huh. you know, and that I mean, you know, Joe Burrow stepped wrong at practice on July 27th. And that might have ruined the season of the team that had an excellent chance to be the number one seed. It's mm-hmm. totally absolutely bizarre, but that is the case. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Let's look on the bright side now with two teams. Miles, I love watching the Houston Texans. Love watching them. And the reason that I love watching them is, you know, they have, what's the, what's the, the, the saying? I forget who said it, man. They got some dogs on that team. You know, they got some guys who love to play football, love to play football. And I applaud the way they have drafted and the way that they have basically formed this team. And, and, and I just want to say two things about that exact, that exact topic, okay? So, like, if you were looking at how do you want to form a team that has really been down, that has a negative image around the league, what you want to do is you want to get some guys on that team who you know are going to set a great example in the locker room, in the community, around the team, and are going to do it in a way that is going to make people really, really enjoy watching your team play. And I bring that up for two reasons. One, that they have players on that team that they have drafted, quite honestly, And when they drafted these players, they weren't positive that they were going to be kind of leaders. But before the season, C.J. Stroud, Will Anderson voted two of the team captains by the players. And you could say, ah, you know, coach put his thumb on the scales of the voting and all that stuff. But I see no evidence that these two guys aren't two of the three or four major leaders on this team. But they didn't just draft two guys who obviously are really, really good football players. They also drafted players who love playing football. And one of those is the fifth-round pick from Alabama. He's one of my defensive players of the week this week. And... 
I gave him the defensive player of the week because against the Steelers, he ramrodded, uh, you know, the the running back for the Steelers, uh, Jalen Warren, and stoned him and forced the Steelers to kick a field goal. And on another play, he's covering George Pickens in the end zone and breaks up a picket to Pickens pass that would have been a touchdown. And again, they have to settle for a field goal. Henry To'o is his name. And he is a player from Alabama who every time you watched Alabama on film, you know, or you, you coming into this draft, well, you know, really good player, doesn't have sort of the measurables or the speed that you want to see. I don't know what anybody is talking about. This guy is a really, really good football player. Your early observations of the Texans, Miles. Yeah, I mean, anytime you get a guy that can come in and that kind of round in the draft and he just seems to fit like a glove, that to me is really good scouting and it's working with the coaching staff to figure out, you know, what does it, what is it supposed to look like? And then that's your guy you plug in yeah. and play and man, you, it fits like a glove and that's great. I, what I think about the Houston Texans is CJ Stroud and I'm, I'm so impressed by the way he's played. He is easily looked like the best quarterback in this class through four games. Yes. But still, I, I yeah. think that what he's doing as a rookie is impressive. I give a lot of credit to Bobby Slowick, you know, what he's doing in terms of the play calling and setting him up to be successful it's not something that you can just easily do, right? And it, it takes a lot, not just from the play caller, but also QB's coach, right? Into the quarterback doing the work and all that. But there was a clip that was kind of floating around on social media after the game, um, <clears throat> after that win that they had over the Steelers. And it was CJ Stroud kind of talking about how you know, we want our fans in Houston to have some swag, you know, to be really proud to wear Houston Texans gear. And that's just not something that folks in Houston have been able to do over the last couple of years. But basically, you know, how he was saying he takes that seriously. I think that that's the kind of leadership that you want from your franchise quarterback. And I think it says a lot about C.J. Stroud that he has looked so good and that he has performed as well as he has this early on in his career, especially with the kind of crap that he was taking in that pre-draft process. To me, this says a lot about everything that the Texans have done to set up an environment for success and also the way that C.J. Stroud has taken that bull by the horns and just run with it. Bull by the horns. Clever, Miles. You didn't even say no pun intended. <laughs> if well, you look you at the Texans it. logo, there you have. You know, they have I the mean, Longhorn. You know, uh, um, sometimes. <laughs> not bad, not bad. Hey, I, I want to just say two things about Stroud. Last week, after they won in Jacksonville, I talked to him after the game. And, you know, this is something that to me... You can't, you, you have to include in how you consider a player, okay? But it, you don't really know. It's a lot of it. It could be words, but it really isn't only words when you talk about what C.J. Stroud said to me after game. And I'm going to read it to you. It's from my column last week. And he talked about how he hated the word rebuild, He said, we're grown men. We're NFL players. 
Why can't we win any game we show up to play? That Jacksonville team's a top 10 team in the NFL, but we knew we could play with them. And then he said, I'm nobody's fish. And I absolutely love that statement because it's almost like I'm nobody's pushover, but to him, I'm nobody's fish. And I think this is the attitude right now prevailing on a team. Think about it. Mm -hmm. C.J. Stroud from Ohio State. The expectation is we win every Saturday. Will Anderson, Henry, To'o'o. Wait, To'o, To'o. Yeah, there you go. Alabama. We play every Saturday. We expect to win every Saturday. Why does that change when you come into the NFL? And if you don't win, you're going to be sick. That, to me, is is one of the things that Nick Casario did. And look, I openly question Nick Casario trading up for Willie Anderson. Openly. Because my whole point is, you very well could have given up the first pick in the draft next year to use a first-round pick this year and maybe the first pick in the draft next year on a player who, I mean, we all think is pretty good, Will Anderson, but it's more than just the player. It's the player and the attitude. And mm-hmm. I don't know, Miles, the Houston Texans, they kind of fascinate me. I will not be surprised if you, hey, listen, if you beat the division favorite or the overwhelming division favorite, on their turf by mm-hmm. 20, you mm-hmm. tell me. I mean, you think that team has a chance to win the division? Damn right they do. Yeah, hell yeah, they do. Yeah, especially that particular that division in particular, right? I mean, who's been really all that impressive between the Jaguars, the Colts, and, and also, you know, the Texans and the Titans? I mean, any team, I think, has a shot to win that division, but... If you're talking about a team that's on the upswing, yeah, the the Texans certainly do have that chance. Okay, we're going to end our first segment here talking about the Arizona Cardinals. And I understand the Cardinals are sitting there at one and three. And why in the world would we spend three minutes of the podcast talking about a team that's one and three and say... They're a lot better than we thought. And I would say, even after a 19-point loss to uh, San Francisco, well, San Francisco's probably the best team in football, but certainly mm-hmm. is in the discussion. And, and, and I would just say that, you know, this is a team that had a 20 to nothing lead on the Giants at halftime, blew it. Um, and a team that beat the Dallas Cowboys by 12 points at home and it was absolutely no fluke. A team that played Washington in the opener really, really tough, held them to 20 points. Uh, I, I just see so many good signs. And look, I think we all were very skeptical, dubious of Jonathan Gannon, um, not necessarily because he's not a good coach, but because he didn't have a great team to work with, wasn't really sort of an inspiring guy, um, and, and all that stuff. And I, I just, I keep thinking about one thing. If you come into a team and say, we're going to play very, very basic football,
football. We are going to do the stuff that wins in the NFL and has won in the NFL for 104 years. Okay? We are going to run the ball very well. And, Miles, what's crazy, even though they're one in three, they're averaging, averaging running the ball 27 times a game for 5.3 yards a carry. And that's not any uh, fluky number. You know, James Conner runs hard. He runs tough. And, and, and here's the other thing. I think what is really interesting about this team is that they trade five weeks ago for Josh Dobbs, and they basically hand him the job. Oh, the tank is in. But you don't know Josh Dobbs. Josh Dobbs is a guy who has been waiting for this chance his whole life, and he's been playing the position of quarterback as a starting player from the time he was six years old in Alpharetta, Georgia, till the time he got drafted in 2017 by the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. And he had to make a decision once he got to the Steelers. Am I here to hold the clipboard to help the starter and everything? He said, I am going to go into work every day and do something better than I did it the day before. And so now you watch him play, plays with confidence. Uh, I mean... I, I, know, I don't know what the line is, Bengals at Arizona this week. I'd be very surprised if Arizona doesn't win that game. I would too, um, based on the way both teams have been playing lately. And, you know, Jonathan Gannon, I think, you know, you're just saying this basically, but they're they doing the fundamental things well. And when you do that, then you can build off of it and get to other things. So it, it's been impressive to see what they've done especially bringing in Dobbs and offensive coordinator Drew Petson came from Cleveland so had the familiarity with Dobbs also has the familiarity with Bill Callahan who is one of the best offensive line coaches in football and so when you have been around that and you can then implement some of the things that you've learned in Cleveland with that Arizona run game I think that those are the kinds of things that are starting to translate so yeah, we'll see where Arizona ends up, you know, in the standings at the end of the year. But I think right now you really should feel good about yourself and about your team if you're an Arizona Cardinals fan. And I, I just really did not anticipate that being the case four weeks into the season. One last number to leave you with. Josh Dobbs has started four games for the Arizona Cardinals. He's thrown an average of 31 passes per game. He's completing 71% of his throws and has not thrown an interception. That, ladies and gentlemen, along with rushing for 5.3 yards a carry, that is how you win in the NFL. And that's why, in my opinion, this team is not going to be... is not. It, 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 they're one and three now. They're not losing three out of every four games this year. I will guarantee no, I that. So. Take that to the bank. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to give you some thoughts on my weekend in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, we'll talk about when will Brandon Staley learn. And then later on in the podcast, we're going to listen to Gary Myers talk about his new book, Once a Giant. We'll be back after this. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So, Miles, I want to get to a little bit about my experience covering college football which I believe I've covered now one college football game in the last 40 years. Uh, I, I, I may have snuck into one or two, so I, I can't. But And so I can't sit here and say, I know exactly this. I know exactly that. I'm a neophyte. I don't know. I can't sit here and say anything other than, if you ask me my gut feeling, my gut feeling is Shadur Sanders is going to be a better NFL player than Caleb Williams. But it's a totally unqualified opinion because I've seen one game of each of theirs. Obviously, I've seen highlights of both guys. When you see highlights, it's silly. You can't make judgments. But I just think Shadur Sanders, uh, what I saw on Saturday in Boulder, Colorado, does more things well that I don't know right now if Caleb Williams is going to do well, does more things well, um, or more things well, better, whatever the bad language linguistics I've gotten myself into now that I've twisted myself like a pretzel. I really like a lot of the things that Shadur Sanders does. But let me get just to the overall thought. I, I'm not sure because I... I do think that Deion Sanders is unique. You could easily say, I've read a lot of things and I've heard a lot of people say, this is the future of college football. Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that it is because I'm not sure that Deion Sanders is copyable. You know, yeah. I, I, he's, he's one of one. Yes. And, He's always been that way, going back to being drafted in 1989, you know, where people were rolling their eyes when Deion Sanders was on the cover of Sports Illustrated with a top hat on, smiling, and, you know, talking about how he wants to set a new standard for players in the NFL. You don't have to be a quarterback to get paid at the top of the market. And he goes and he's a baseball player he you know as I wrote this week this is a guy who's homer off Oral Hershiser twice this is a guy who went eight for 15 in four World Series games this is a guy who in 1995 proved the point that he could be play, paid like a quarterback in 1995 
Steve Young was in the midst of his incredible Super Bowl year, throwing six touchdown passes to beat San Diego in the Super Bowl. And, you know, halfway across the country, Deion Sanders signs a contract in Dallas. And the average salary for Steve Young was $5.1 million a year. And the average salary for uh, Deion Sanders was $5 million a year. So he's basically making the same as the, uh, the great Steve Young. And so I just bring that up to say that I don't know that you can replicate much about Deion Sanders either in his career. It's the reason why CC Sabathia flew uh, halfway across the country on Saturday to stand on the sidelines to see it. I asked him, what are you doing here? He goes, I love Dion. I just had to see this. It was the exact same feeling I had, not necessarily that I love Dion, but I'm fascinated by Dion. So, but I, so I don't know if, if we're going to see this a lot, but I can tell you it's eminently doable with the rules in college football now. Because of the transfer portal, because of NIL, you've got rules now that allow you to invent teams. And that's what Deion Sanders did this year at Colorado. He invented a really good football team with all the players he took from the transfer portal. Was it ugly? Was it a little gauche in basically uh, all but, you know, kind of kicking players off the team. Just basically saying, we're bringing in this guy. There may not be room for you here. So if you want to play, you might have to go elsewhere. And look, I have no idea what Deion Sanders said to these guys. I'm, I'm totally, uh, you know, basically from an outside perspective, that's how it looks. And it appears that that's what happened. But I also think that, I had this opinion when I left there, and I talked to a couple of guys who, um, at 6.25 in the morning, who were already setting up their tailgate for the day. I mean, that's because the game started at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. So you do all this, and you ask yourself the question, well, at some point, because I believe probably next year, Colorado will contend for a national title because they should still have Shadur Sanders playing quarterback. And Dion's got one more run at the transfer portal to get him the offensive and defensive front players that he needs, because he very much needs them. I, I don't know how many days you're going to play a team as good as USC within seven points, having a chance to win late when you can't really protect your quarterback very well. It's not necessarily to a Daniel Jones point, but it's close. Um, so I, I, I just left there thinking that he's got a really good chance to build a top 10 team next year, and then we'll see what happens. But, so, but my bigger question, he's told Rich Eisen, I'm not going anywhere, I'm not leaving. Um, my biggest question is in three years, when Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones get on a plane in Frisco, Texas, and fly to Boulder and sit across a table from you and say, Dion, this is your destiny. You need to be the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Maybe Dion will say, happy where I am. Thanks a lot. Uh, Good luck to the Cowboys. Maybe he'll say that. 
But maybe he'll say, you know, my kids are out of the program. I've already accomplished what I need to accomplish here. You know, we contended for a national championship, maybe even won one. I, I'm going to try to go win a Super Bowl now. Who knows? I don't know what Dion will do. It's easy to say the historical road is littered with people who say one thing in 2023, but who do another thing in 2026. And that's humanness. That's humanity. You know, we change our minds. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's easy for Deion Sanders to say right now, I'm never leaving college football or whatever his quote was to Rich Eisen, but that certainly was the upshot. Uh, And we'll see what happens three years down the road. But miles from a thousand miles away, I wondered, what do you think about what's going on at Colorado and what it pretends for the future of, of football? Well, I think it's fun. I think it's exciting. I, I think it's noteworthy. But I think also what you said about Deion Sanders being one of one is completely right. I mean, he's one of one. He's number one, right? He's the only one that he is. So I just I feel like you can't mimic and emulate this really anywhere else because there's nobody else right. who is like Deion Sanders. And I mean, you've spent plenty of time covering him as a professional athlete, right? So you have a really good view of what he was, you know, and and what he became. And now to see who he is as a head coach, I I think, like I said, it's just fun and it's exciting. And it's not just that because he is who he is. It's because they're putting together a really good product on the field. And the only time that they have not done that is when they were playing Oregon. I mean, they, they played SC really close. And yeah, you can say Lincoln Riley's never had a defense and until he gets a defense, he probably won't win a national title, but you still have to execute those plays against that defense. You still have to come back. You still have to have a shot at it at the end. And yeah, the offense probably could have sped things up a little bit toward the end of the game. If you're Colorado, but still it's, I think you're building something right. And as this continues, I think that Colorado will get better. I think one of the things that will help Deion Sanders in the transfer portal, aside from being Deion Sanders, is the fact that we can see the success, right? We see where, hey, if you come in here and you help us here, we're going to be this much better, or we're going to be able to continue stacking blocks. So, yeah, I, I think it certainly is exciting for college football and for football as a whole. But I think if you are another place that thinks you can just bring somebody in and like you can have the Deion Sanders, like, no, you can't. You, you can't do that because you're not him. You know, true words never spoken. Um, the one thing that I keep thinking about when I think about Deion Sanders, Colorado, everything the dominoes started to fall when the NCAA stopped basically existing and they started letting everyone just do whatever they want. The TV networks took over the game. Uh, I don't cover it. I'm watching it from a hundred miles away, but TV networks just started running this game. And it's one of those things. It's why, you know, when you watch the games, now you just see it's going to be really, really hard. It's like one of the guys who I met when I was doing the uh, when I was doing the tailgate tour 
on Saturday, one of the guys said to me, he goes, listen, it's clear what football is going to become. There's going to be a tier one, tier two, and tier three. There's going to be 20 or 25 teams in tier one who spend a billion dollars or whatever, you know, I'm joking, spend all this money to compete at the absolute highest level. Huge NIL money for players and make it very simply all about a business, all about winning. And then you're going to have teams, secondary teams, you know, like Stanford, like Cal, like you know, who else? I, you know, pick, pick schools that are nice programs, but they're not contending for national titles. Arizona, Arizona State, you would think, I don't know, but there's going to be that. And then there's going to be tier three, which is people who play the way college football was kind of set up to play. Mid-American Conference, you know, the WAC, you know, all the, you know, the schools that you've got to go to school five days a week and then you play football on Saturday. And I'm joking because now Mid-American Conference late in the year plays on Tuesday and Wednesday night to be on national TV. But for the most part, you still got to be a student, okay? And, and, And I'm not saying you don't have to go to school some of these other places, but clearly tier one, it's all about making money, winning a national championship. And you can say whatever you want. And if you're a good, if you're a good student, you still can take advantage of a four year or five year free college education if, if you want to, but I think it's pretty clear. You don't have to, um, I don't know, just a few thoughts I had. And I, I really feel like the future of college football is so totally up in the air. It's so interesting. And I noted the other day, somebody wrote, somebody said, Nick Saban will be on TV next year. That, you know, he could see him, hey, I've had enough. Somebody pays me $4 million a year, whatever the number is. I'll go do TV. I don't even know what those guys make. But, I, you know, he might figure the business has changed so much, so drastically and look, Miles, I heard the other day totally just talking, you know, with some people at the Colorado USC game that Lincoln Riley is not crazy about what the Pac-12 has done because now, you know, do you realize the other day, Miles, and I wrote this in my column, that the wake-up call for the USC football players on Saturday in Denver, Colorado, was 4.40 a.m. Because they had a game uh, 35 minutes away in Boulder at 10 a.m. Mountain time. You know, because of Fox having a noon game. So do you think that Fox's whatever big Saturday or whatever the thing is called, or what, however, whatever form this thing takes on Fox, on ESPN, to a lesser degree on NBC. Do you think whatever form it takes when you have USC being a powerful team joining the Big Ten, do you think they're going to say, we're going to respect you, we're not going to schedule any of your games before noon body clock in California? Hell no. They're going to, they're, when they go to Columbus in Eastern time or Ann Arbor in Eastern time, or State College in Eastern Time, 
They're going to schedule one of those games every year at noon. So USC is is basically, you know, this deal with the devil that USC and UCLA have made is going to have consequences. And we'll see what happens. We'll see if it matters. But my only point is, Bird Lincoln Riley is not crazy about that. And if he's a classic college football coach, why would he be? So, you know, who knows what the future is. Miles, before we get to Gary Myers, I just wanted to say one other thing. And you brought it up. You know, again, for the second consecutive week, the Los Angeles Chargers, first at their 35 and I think at their 25 in consecutive weeks, tried to make a fourth and one and failed and opened the door for two teams in tight games to beat them because they weren't willing to punt on fourth down in the final three minutes of a game deep in their own territory. Thoughts? Well, I understand Brandon Staley wanting to go for it. I I do. And, you know, if you look at the analytics, right, the numbers, the data, it says that going for it is a good idea because if you can get it, then you will help close out the game. So that decision I understand and I get, and frankly, I guess I kind of support it. But where I think we need to start making a distinction is it's not just go for it, right? It's what play do you use when you go for it? Because it's not, there are two separate entities there, and you can say, yeah, going for it's the right decision. But once you do, how are you trying to get that one yard, right? So against the Vikings, they're using Joshua Kelly as a fullback, and he is a running back. So you're asking a player to do something he's not usually done in a very critical down and distance so that he can get you that one yard. Now, if you're a running back and you line up, you know, five yards or four yards, whatever it is behind the quarterback, then that's the kind of momentum that you can usually get. I mean, momentum in the actual sense of the word, the physics term, right? You're going into the line. If you have fewer steps to do that because you're lining up as a fullback, then yeah, it's going to make sense that you might get a little bit stonewalled because you don't have the same number of steps that you have when you're going toward the line of scrimmage. So that's where I had an issue there. But then on Sunday, when you have Justin Herbert and we see his left hand completely taped up and he's got a splint on his finger, and so he cannot grip the football. He's not taking a snap under center. Then you put a glove on it so it looks a little bit better, I guess. I don't know. But when you ask him to sneak it on fourth and one and he can't grip the football, that's not a good play call. It's not a good decision because of everything else that's gone on in the game. So, yeah, I get decision to go for it is one thing. But how are we going for it after that? You know, we know that Justin Herbert was not healthy really to take under center snaps because at the end of the game, they're in victory formation at a shotgun. Okay, so if he can't take a snap to end the game. Why are we having him do this in most critical of situations? I don't like that uh, element of it. And that's where you have to say, okay, if we have a fourth and one, why don't we have a really good two point play that we love that we were to use, you know, down there in the red zone, right? We have to use that from shotgun. We have to do something else. We have to make sure that we take into account every single thing that's going on in the game. So those are where my issues lie with the Brandon Staley fourth down decisions. It's not the decision to go for it. It's what are we doing after and how are we trying to get that yard? I think that's a really interesting point. I just, I just think at some point, at some point, 
you have to look at your team and you have to say what gives us the best chance to win. And going for it on fourth and one in your own territory, now that three times it has bitten them in the rear end, it's, you know, look, I really like Brandon Staley. I think he's the way of the future for NFL coaches. He's really bright. He definitely thinks outside the box. Uh, So I'm on record as really liking him. I don't think he's a nutty professor or anything like that. But I got a great text the other day from somebody in the league who I've known for 100 years uh, who said, hey, I know you're a Staley guy. He goes, uh, for such a smart guy, he does some dumb things and he doesn't learn from them. That is what bothers me a little bit about Brandon Staley. And, but anyway, we'll see what happens. Uh, they've got their buy. They can think about it and uh, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, Miles, I want to get to our guest. Um, we're going to get to Gary Myers, who uh, is a longtime pro football writer. I've known him since 1984 when I first got in this business. And he's written a book about the New York Giants that we're going to talk about. I'm going to introduce the book, introduce Gary Myers. I think you're going to like this conversation, whether you care anything about the Giants. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in this book uh, about the effect of football on people and on people's mental and physical health. Let's listen to Gary Myers. Happy to be joined on the podcast this week by Gary Myers. He's written a book called Once a Giant, a story of victory, tragedy, and life after football. It's basically about the 1986 New York Giants, the Super Bowl championship team. Uh, The book uh, is from Public Affairs Press, a division of Hachette. And we're happy to have him on. And Gary, um, you've gotten quite a lot of notice early on with this book. And I told you, you know, when we spoke about it, what really impressed me is how honest a lot of these players were. You had five players who at least at some point in their lives have have considered suicide. Um, You've got Bill Parcells basically giving not maybe indigent players, but needy players at some point in the last couple of decades, over $4 million. Um, I guess, first of all, where'd you get the idea and how did you get these players to really open up to you? Well, Peter, you know, first of all, the book is really about life after football. And that's a subject that, you know, I has really intrigued me now for quite a number of years. It's come to the forefront because of the CTE. Uh, as you know, but it goes so much deeper than that. And the problems are, I, I can't say they're worse than CTE because that's, you know, has a tremendous impact on these players' lives, even though they don't get diagnosed until after, you know, until posthumously. But, you know, some of the things that these players are going through, you know, physically and financially because the health insurance from the NFL is inadequate after they finish up. So I've, I've, I've been trying to figure out a way to, to write about that subject and the age group I wanted to write about was players in their 50s and 60s. And I've also always wanted to do, you know, a New York book. This is my sixth book, and I've never written about a New York team. So I kind of was able to combine the two ideas, a New York team and this idea of 
what's their life like after football. And um, I started out, you know, probably two years ago um, to start doing my research. And, you know, the, the really um, satisfying thing for me is, as you've just mentioned, how open and honest these players were. Now, I moved to Dallas in December of 81 and didn't come back until the spring of 89. So you covered that team on a day-to-day basis for Newsday, but I didn't. I was the NFL writer at that point at the Dallas Morning News. So I covered a lot of giant games, a lot of NFC East games, a great race that year between Washington and, and the Giants. So I probably was at half their games leading up to the playoffs. So I was around those players. And a lot of them were, you know, from the last team that I covered in the summer of 81 was Sims and Taylor and Carson, et cetera. And then when they came back in 89, a lot of those guys were still there. And I've stayed in touch with them over the years. And so I got off to a running start when I started my research because I had relationships with those guys. And there was already a trust factor that was you know was established and i think that's the best part about about this book and i i don't mean to patronize you here peter but i always admired the fact that you got to the details that even the smallest detail was important because it could really shed light on a subject and i've learned that from reading you uh over the years and i think my as a result my questioning has gotten better and i've always taken it a little like one step further when they start telling me stories to try to probe and just see what I can get out of them. And some of the stories in this book are, are really just, you know, they, they blew me away. I want to talk about, um, you know, one of the things in the book that really impressed me uh, that I think is the most enlightening thing about this book. Look, the headline in the book, Parcells gives more than $4 million to his former players. That's the headline. That's, that's kind of stunning. Uh, almost, you get the feeling that he did it, you know, almost a little bit out of a sense of guilt over the years yeah. for, uh, you know, for running such tough practices and really beating the crap out of a lot of these guys. He got results, though, uh, and that's what it's all about, uh, you know, in the football business. But I don't know, Gary, the most impressive thing about this book to me, is Harry Carson captain for life. Now, you've got to explain how and why we think of football, particularly today, as kind of a mercenary game. You know, guys move from team to team. They don't last in one place the way they used to with like the old Steelers and the old Raiders. But explain the concept of Harry Carson, captain for life. Yeah, I mean, Pete, he says, you know, these were Parcells' guys, but they're also my guys. And he took his role as captain seriously when he played, and he's taken it seriously now, 37 years after that championship team. He just feels responsible for all of these guys. It's it's an amazing quality that he has, you know, Harry's done well for himself in his post football life financially. Um, He went through the post concussion syndrome after he retired in 88 and was able to, you know, get the right medical care and get himself straightened out. And he's determined to, to make sure that these players get the right medical care, 
And if they're hurting financially, sorry for the fax machine in the background. Um, oh, got to turn this thing off. Can you, hold on one sec. Sorry. Yep. That was probably a first for you, but it was one of those self-cleaning vacuums that turns on <laughs> at like nine o'clock every Thursday morning. <laughs> That's great. So, so anyhow, some of the things that Harry has done over the years have, have truly been amazing. Jim Burt was out of football for 10 years, and he had had a back surgery, but he had never gone for a medical checkup. He was afraid to go to the doctor. So Harry found out about it and insisted on Burt going to the doctor. And Burt says, I'm only going to go if you take me. I mean, it's a grown man, a married man with kids. He wouldn't go to the doctor unless Harry took him. So Harry and his wife picked up Bert and took him to the doctor. They get to the doctor in the waiting room, and Bert says, I'm not going in to the examining room unless you come with me. Wow. And, and Harry goes, okay, I'll go in. Now, there's some disagreement over what Bert allowed Harry to witness in that examining room. Is, is men know at that age group there's some fairly – sensitive testing that the doctor might do and harry said he just turned his head the other way and bert said he threw him out of the room so i guess they're all you could argue about that but now jim bert goes for a checkup every year and it's because of harry uh jeff rutledge had a life-threatening car accident like this is this is the this to me is the most amazing story in the book you got to tell it yeah so it was in the early 2000s and jeff rutledge was driving in in tennessee he was a high school coach and like we all know we shouldn't do. He looked down at his phone while he's driving at a high speed on the highway. And he looks up and there's an 18 wheeler in front of him and he goes to avoid it and hits the guardrail and is horrifically injured and breaks every bone in his face has to be, you know, removed from the car in the hospital for a while, winds up back at his house in Nashville after he was released from the hospital. Harry was visiting family in uh, Florence, South Carolina, and just decided, almost not going to spur the moment, to drive seven and a half, eight hours, part of it through the Blue Ridge Mountains, which Harry described as treacherous, to show up at Jeff Rutledge's, uh, I don't know if I said Hofstetler before, but it's Rutledge, Yeah, um, uh, at Jeff Rutledge's um, house in, in Nashville, uh, unannounced. And um, he spent two hours with him, and, and turn around and, and drove back. And I said to Harry, why? He wasn't really particularly close to Rutledge. He, That's he, the crazy thing. that He made it very clear that he wasn't close to Rutledge. And listen, I remember I covered those teams. I was there in the locker room yeah. every day. Jeff Rutledge was as quiet as a church mouse. He was, he, he was the least noticeable player on this team. I can tell you, he never said a word. And that's why when, when I read this story, I said, man, I doubt Harry even knew Jeff Rutledge more than, Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Nice game, whatever. You know, I think you're right about that. And um, Harry said, I said, why? And he goes, I just had to make sure he was okay. And then he reported back to his teammates that, yeah, Rutledge is, is, you know, had a horrible car accident, but He's doing better now. And when I spoke to Rutledge about it, I said, what'd you think about that? He goes, that's just the kind of guy Harry is. 
And so, you know, he was the, the one who put together the 25-year reunion in 2011. He's the one that gets um, his teammates involved. Uh, if there's a problem, he started a GoFundMe page for Brad Benson, who's having some issues. So Harry and Parcells, and Parcells considers himself the patriarch of this team, and Harry still considers himself captain. So in a sense, the roles are unchanged from what they were in 1986. Now, Parcells had a love-hate relationship, as you well know, with a lot of those players. Um, and he would go to Harry if things were, and George Martin and Phil, you know, if things weren't going well in the locker room, you go, you know, fix it and just leave it up to them. Now, now Bill, all these years later, um, he, he really appreciates the sacrifice those players made physically and emotionally and mentally for him. Because look what he look what Bill was able to achieve because of this group of players. Yeah, two Super Bowls were basically, you know, the same foundation with each team. He's in the Hall of Fame. He, he's he's a wealthy man, able to take care of his three daughters and his grandchildren, put money aside that he needs to live the rest of his life, and now he has a pile of money that he's designated to help his friends, and he considers his former players. His friends and Peter, you know, along with that, one of the more amazing things in this book really is that these players call him on his birthday. They send him Father's Day cards. Um, Lee Roussan's wife called Bill and said, can you record on your phone a birthday greeting to Lee? Now, the fact that he's doing it is not as amazing yeah. as the fact that he knows how to do it, <laughs> you know? that he knows how to do that on his phone, on his iPhone or whatever he has. And he records it and sent it to Lee's wife. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's kind of, there's a lot of heartbreaking stories in the book, but the stuff about Harry and Bill in particular are, are really heartwarming how they still care about these guys. You know, I, I just, I have not heard of a player who essentially 30 years after he and all these guys were out of the NFL feeling some sense of responsibility for those players. And that really should be a very big part of Harry Carson's football legacy. Well, Peter, I mean, it's not only Giants players. There's a lot of players from around the league from that era and even today who rely on Harry for advice, for just life advice. And, um, you know, you have to remember, in his Hall of Fame induction speech in 2006, which he completely ad-libbed, um, the whole theme was about taking care of the players who helped make the NFL what it had become. And yeah. he felt that the care from the league and the players association was completely insufficient. And I remember, cause I was there for that induction. Uh, that was a very controversial speech about a very, very important topic that, and I think that Harry's speech was the impetus for the, um, for the the light that has been, you know, shined on on this subject for the last you know seventeen years or so, that he's the really he's really the one that instead of getting up there and and talking about his former coaches and his teammates, and he did thank the appropriate people, but he felt it was most important to uh, dedicate that speech to what he considered to be, you know, such a crucial topic, and that was that the league and the player association needed to take better care of its players. And since that time, Peter, 
the health insurance that the players get, which is still completely insufficient, has gone from either 12 to 18 months after they finished their career to where it's now they're covered for five years. And, and, you know, in my opinion, that's still not good enough because the, the problems that a lot of these players have don't really occur until their 50s and 60s when they need the shoulder right. and hip replacements and they're having, you know, mental health issues from, as a result of the concussions that they suffered during their career. So it's still not enough, but at least, you know, Harry bringing the issue to the forefront helped result uh, in 2011 for the health insurance to be improved for retired players. Gary, two other things I wanted to ask you about. So I finished this book and I found myself feeling a little bit depressed Mm -hmm. after you think about some of the really good things and the good deeds uh, by some of the people in this book. I found myself sort of depressed thinking that Guys who played football in the 80s and 90s before the NFL got serious. Uh, and I don't even know if I, maybe it's even in the first 10 years of this century. Before the NFL really got serious, I think we're going to see down the road an incredible number of disastrous, sad stories involving players who played in that era. And the stories are forming now, they're developing now. We've seen some of them already, but I was just left to think that I I think we're going to see some really, you know, uh, kind of depressing headlines in the coming years. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I agree with you. And um, a, p- a part of like my challenge in writing this book, I didn't want to write 300 pages of depressing stories because nobody nobody wants to read that. You know, you know, I didn't want to pile on. So I made a really conscious effort to dedicate part of the book to how this team became a brotherhood in 1986 by winning a championship together. And part of that was some truly, you know, funny stuff and pranks that they pulled on each other and and, you know, stories about sleeping in the parking lot on Friday nights after a night out in, in Manhattan, um, you know, coming back into the parking lot at four o'clock in the morning and sleeping there and not wanting to miss Parcells nine o'clock meeting on Saturday morning. So they paid uh, the locker room guys, the kids 50 bucks each to come knock knock on the windows and, and wake them up at a quarter to nine and they'd walk down the tunnel into the stadium groggy, but they wouldn't miss the meeting. So the book is balanced somewhat with stories like that, but you're absolutely right. I, unfortunately, again, I, I don't necessarily think we've seen the worst of it. You know, we, we've seen Dave right. Dorsey and Andre Waters and Junior Seau, you know, all commit suicide by shooting themselves and they're taking their own lives and then posthumously being diagnosed with CTE. I, I know there there's some innovations medically now where they're, they're trying to test players now. And there's a lot of players, you know, like Leonard Marshall is one of them who says he has early Parkinson's and he's convinced he has CTE based on some of the symptoms. And I'm sure there's an awful lot of players like that because, Peter, in those days when a player, they get their bell rung, they would call it, or they got dinged. So they'd call them to the sidelines and they say, what's your name? My name's Peter King. Who are you playing for? I'm playing for the Giants. What day of the week is this Sunday? Which stadium are we in? We're in Giants Stadium. Okay, you're good. Go back in the game. That doesn't happen today. Right. And, 
there's much more care taken for these players. And there are players who suffered multiple concussions in games. And it was a combination of ignorance and naivety by the, by the teams, not doing enough to make themselves understand. And I'm not placing blame necessarily on the teams. I would say this is more of a league matter that yeah. they, just, they just didn't take this seriously enough um, early enough. Now, fortunately, right. they have, and now you can have the concussion protocol, and and there's been great strides taken in that area. But, you know, Phil Sims told me stories that he got hurt in one game. I guess it was against the 49ers. I think it was in that 49-3 to playoff game in 86 where, you know, he he's lying on the ground, and one of the 49ers is looking over him and said, I think I killed him. And, you know, Phil was able to be helped off the field, maybe sat out of series, and was back in the game. Uh, that stuff happened all the time. Yeah. Harry Carson having to be held out by his teammates in the huddle and not understanding Bill Belichick sending in signals from the sidelines. So Gary Reason's a rookie, you know, had to relay the, what Belichick was sending in to the, to the huddle. And after a play, Harry was okay because he had a like a train wreck collision the play before with John Riggins. Now, you know, you have all these independent spotters and, um, Probably would have come out of the game, yeah. Oh, no question, no question. And probably would not have been let back in the game. Gary, I want to ask you one other thing. Mm-hmm. So the probably the most, what I remember from covering the Giants for four years is probably the most mythical player on that team wasn't Lawrence Taylor. It was the tight end, Mark Bavaro. Yeah. And people love Mark Bavaro. He was the epitome of the strong, silent type handsome kid from Massachusetts, went to Notre Dame, great blocker of a tight end, but became a good offensive tight end as well in his time with the Giants. And he's probably most famous for dragging Ronnie Lott seven yards down the field in a game at Candlestick Park. So Mark Bavaro's life has not been a bowl of cherries since he got out of football. Tell us what you know right now and what Mark Bavaro was like uh, when you were able to speak with him. Yeah, I mean, for those who didn't get a chance to see him play, he was really Gronk before Gronk, without, yeah. without the sideshow. Uh, just a tremendous player. And if he didn't suffer those knee injuries, you know, towards the end of his career, uh, there's no doubt in my mind he'd be in the Hall of Fame. He was that good of a player. And just to spin it forward, today he's doing really well, much better than he was based on the story I'm about to tell you, he's back playing golf all the time. The saddest thing, or one of the really sad things he said to me is that he never really found anything after football that he was good at. And, you know, he's a bright guy and um, teammates have tried to take care of him by getting him involved in different projects, but he, he's never really sunk his teeth into anything. But Easter Sunday, 2021, he has his daughter and her husband and their baby over to his house in Boxford, Massachusetts. And uh, the next day, uh, his daughter's family uh, was diagnosed with COVID. And then the, so that was a Monday. And then that Tuesday, Mark had played golf a couple of days in a row and came home not feeling well and just knew that he had COVID. And it just escalated from that point forward. Uh, a few days later, uh, he was feeling dizzy, fainted on his kitchen floor. His wife came down. Uh, called 911. They didn't take him to the hospital. He talked his way out of going to the hospital. The next night, the same thing happened, but worse. Uh, 
he fell face first on his bathroom floor and kind of was startled when he hit the ground and he woke up in a, in a pool of blood. And he, he gave me a picture that I used in the book um, where his face is just completely black and blue. It was like a day or two after that happened. And Peter, he went through a seven month period of anxiety and depression and paranoia. Uh, basically his, he described it as his brain was on fire and his wife who finished up her law degree at Harvard. So we know she's a fairly bright woman or a very bright woman you know, told me that she thinks that the virus attacked the weakest part of his body. And because of all the concussions that he suffered during his career, she felt it was his brain that was most vulnerable. And he reached a point, and this is such a sad story, that he's sitting up in his living room thinking about Andre Waters, who he played with the Eagles, and Dave Dewerson, who he played in 1990 on that championship team with the Giants, but he played also played with them in Notre Dame. And he had become friendly with Junior Seau through a mutual friend, Bert Grossman, who played with Seau with the Chargers. And he's sitting there thinking, you know, I, I can never come to grips with how things got gotten so bad that these guys would take their own lives. How, how can it be so bad? And then he said he's sitting in his living room thinking, now I understand. Because he felt the same way. He said he was he was hoping for a heart attack. And he didn't want to live anymore. And he said it was his intellectual side that was saying, Mark, you still have so much to live for. You're going to fight your way through this just like you did the football injuries. And his emotional side saying, how long can you stand on the edge of a cliff and yeah. not jump? And fortunately, his intellectual side won out. It took a long time, but he, he found the right doctor prescribing the right meds. And he got he got through it. And, um, you know, today he's doing well. But he did tell me a story uh, from the summer of 22, when he's finally out feeling somewhat like himself, playing golf, and he's playing with a buddy of his, and he's he hit the ball into the rough, and it's, it's sitting on a pile of grass, and he wasn't sure what was underneath. And it turned out there were rocks underneath, so he takes a swing, and the rock flies up so fast he couldn't close his eye or get his hand over his eye, and the rock hits him in the, in the eye, square in the eye, Wow. And he scratched the retina and he was back in the emergency room. Wow. So at that point, I said to him, Mark, that, you know, that's just not fair. That was like piling on at that point. Yeah. You know, but, you know, he got through that, too. And uh, he's, you know, I talked to him. I, I, I promise you, I, I check up on him all the time because I spent two. And a, can you imagine this, Peter? I spent two and a half hours talking to him. Now, just think back to the Bavaro that, you know. From those years, and that's almost unimaginable. His wife Susan walked into the room when we were done, and she goes, "Hey, he must really like you. He doesn't talk to anybody for two and a half hours." Yeah, and you know his kids. You know, Gary, he he was he was extremely. He was borderline monosyllabic yep. when he was a player with the Giants, but I got to know him a little bit uh, later in his career. And later in his life, I did a couple of paid appearances with him up yeah. in Boston. And he's a he was a phenomenally engaging, nice, nice person. Yep. Extremely cordial, polite, not necessarily outgoing, but just a, a really, really nice guy. And I was so glad to see that because I remember, man, this guy is going to have a tough time when he's out of football. How's he going to communicate? But 
I, I, I'm sure you found that, you know, he was, he was so much better than you remember from his playing days. Yeah. You know, his, 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 he told me that he showed a video of an interview from 1986 to his kids. And the response was dad, you didn't know how to talk. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And if you remember media day, which is not, I mean, it's called Media Day now at the Super Bowl. It used to be called Picture Day. Yeah. If you remember, after the team picture was taken, you know, everybody scatters around. I can't remember where it was. Maybe it was uh, the stadium where the Angels played. They had the Giants. No, it was, oh, well, I don't know where it was, but the game obviously was at the Rose Bowl. Yeah, at the Rose Bowl. But yeah. the Giants were staying, you know, in Orange County. And I, so I think it yeah. might have been at the baseball stadium. So, you know, after the picture was taken, you know, the players set up. I don't know if even they had podiums in those days, but it was an interview period. Mark went on the bus. And when I said, why did you do that? He goes, well, they said it was picture day. I had my picture taken. Nobody said anything about the interviews. And he went on the bus. <laughs> anyway, if you engage with Mark now, he you can't shut him up. Yeah, It's hard to believe. But, you know, he's, he's very eloquent. Um, he's an intelligent guy. Uh, I out of all the interviews I did, it was the most startling, uh, and most shocking, and probably the saddest because of what he went yeah. through. Yeah. But I, I really like him so much as yeah. a guy, and I'm so happy that he's he's got his health back. Gary, very good, good to have you on. So you could discuss your book, Once a Giant: A Story of Victory, Tragedy, and Life After Football. Gary Myers, thanks so much for joining me. You know, Pete, I just want to say it's available yeah. everywhere. And I know a bit what a baseball fan you are. Uh, people have told me that it really reminds them of The Boys of Summer, that unbelievable book by Roger Kahn. Yeah. And if I just, um, if I'm 10% as good as that book, then uh, I'll be very happy. And thank you so much for having me on. My thanks to Gary Myers. And my thanks also every week to Miles Simmons for, we had sort of a rollicking show today this week uh i i mean sometimes i don't know where the show is going and we set some things up but then we start talking about my fantasy team and how i'm playing josh dobbs this week so i realize that everyone who listens to this is going to say this guy obviously knows nothing let's go and listen to somebody else's podcast about football but anyway miles really appreciate you as always all the listeners all the experiencers, I really appreciate you listening, watching, and experiencing the Peter King Podcast. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Peter King Podcast. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available Pro Access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. 
The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. Cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution.